Welcome to Witch City Witches, a podcast from Salem, Massachusetts, exploring the practice of witchcraft. We explore witchcraft through many different lenses, including personal practices, tarot, astrology, ritual, and so much more. I'm Anna. And I'm Becca. And this is episode five of the Witch City Witches podcast. And today we are talking about love magic and sex magic. Very exciting. Just in time for, well, I guess the one day late for Valentine's Day. I think this is going to be coming out on the 15th. That's okay. (laughs) (laughs) And so uh, here we are sitting on a snowy morning since our last discussion on whether spring was coming or not. So I will admit I'm here in my pajamas. (laughs) And we're curled up under some police blankets to talk to you folks. And so we put a call out on Instagram earlier this week asking what questions people might have about love magic. And uh, we also got a question about solitary witchcraft practices and i just wanted to acknowledge that we got that question and we're not addressing it in this episode but we'll definitely circle back to that but of course the biggest question that we got from folks was about the ethics of love magic right so i think you know we talked a little bit about this before recording and i think that you know the most obvious ethical love magic is the love magic that you cast on yourself Mm mm-hmm and, um, you know, that is to increase your self-esteem. It is to make yourself be open to the love in the world. And it's to really be the love that you are looking for. And it will be easier for that to come to you. Um, and, you know, that's, you know, if you're going to be strictly, I don't want to cross any boundaries, that's probably the most ethical you can do. Or if you're in a partnership or, you know, in a relationship already to do love magic together to increase your relationship. Obviously, if everyone involved is, you know, in agreement, then there's no ethical issues. And I think that will probably lead into some of your sex magic talk later in this episode. Absolutely. Yeah. So even when we're talking about love magic on oneself, I think that there's sort of two important paths that you can go with there and in the same way you know if we think about pursuing relationships and putting yourself out there even outside of the context of magic there's that idea of being the best self that you can be so that you have you know your best self to offer to others and so i think that one important form of love magic that you do on yourself is self-love magic mm-hmm. is getting to a place where you can love yourself because it's hard to ask others to love you if you're not loving yourself So I think that before embarking on any kind of love magic, it's good to take some time to see where you're at and what it is that you're offering and putting out there and are you loving yourself enough so that you are coming from a healthy place before you're looking to get involved with other people. Right. And I think like, you know, for techniques, if people are like, okay, well, so what, how do I cast a love magic spell on myself? There are various techniques. You can take a, you can put special herbs in your bath Ritual bathing is a big part of witchcraft and is a very easy way to, you know, cast something on yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, There are also mirror spells where you really look at yourself in the mirror and you see yourself for who you are and you accept yourself for who you are. Mm -hmm. And you really, and you can also take that forward, like you accept for who you are, but then you kind of project into that, you know what do you want to what people what do you want people to see and you can kind of project a glamour on yourself almost or you know reality to to say like this is who I want to be this is who I want to project out into the world yeah so one exercise that I've passed on to students of mine that I think is really important within that 
sort of journey of self-love. And if you folks can hear some rumbling in the background, that is Tony. Tony the tiger, uh, Becca's cat, who is uh, greasing us with his presence today. <laughs> I gave him a calm down treat. It doesn't seem to have kicked in quite yet. <laughs> um, and so the exercise that I have people do is I ask them to go and stand in front of a mirror and look at themselves in the mirror and set a timer for 10 minutes and just look at yourself and say, I love you. And say that for 10 minutes, looking at yourself. And it's the kind of thing where people go, really? That sounds dumb. But, you know, when you start that kind of exercise, you generally start with a dose of, you know, cynicism. But 10 minutes is long enough that it kind of starts to break down some of those barriers. And I've had people come back from doing that exercise and say, you know, I went into it thinking that it sounded really stupid, but by the end of it, I was really looking at myself and people actually have an emotional release from that. You know, people end up crying and realizing that there's a lot of, a lot more kindness that they could be giving themselves that they aren't. So, you know, for anyone who is sort of willing to try that, try it. Spend the 10 minutes in front of a mirror by yourself and say, I love you to your image and really look at yourself. And if you do try that, please send us an email because I'd love to hear about it. I have to say that that cynical, sarcastic self-response of, that seems dumb, is a problem with pretty much all aspects of magic. That we come from a very show me the results, show me the data, our world right now, that is either like all one way of not believing any data, any science, or like, no, owl has to be this exact science. And mm -hmm. most modern witches are very science positive, but they also believe in magic. So it's really this walking between the worlds. And when any time that you, you try something and it's like, oh, that seems dumb, that's something that you really, you need to get past to do any sort of witchcraft because from a rational perspective, that's a very easy reaction to have. Mm -hmm. And it won't work if you're if you have if you're that cynical towards it, it's not going to work. Just like if you're cynical towards going to talk therapy, it's not going to work. That's what I was about to say. Uh, yeah, self improvement yeah. only works if you're willing to do the work, and that is true of magic. You can't look down your nose at magic and then expect it to work for you. Right. You know, you have to craft a genuine relationship with the energies around you and the elements and the deities that you're working with if you want to actually have results. So that's a really good point that in general, you know, modern cynicism is kind of at odds with a, a healthy <laughs> sort of witchcraft practice. Right. Yeah. So so I think that that's like, you know, from ethical standpoint, those are the, the two most ethical things to do are love magic on yourself or love magic between people who are mm -hmm. already in a partnership and are aware that this is a magical ritual that you're mm -hmm. doing. Um, then there's sort of gray lines where I think it's generally fine if you're just, if you have a list of things that you're looking for in a person and you say, universe, manifest this for me. Mm -hmm. It's not significantly different than this is the money I need. Universe, <laughs> manifest this money for me. And I think where, where the lines start being crossed is when um, you're targeting a specific person. Right. And that's not to say that you can't. We talked a little bit about this with Lauren in episode three about the idea that, yes, you can try and impose your will on pretty much anything and everyone around you. And then the question becomes, should you? 
and is the consequence worth it? You know, we've talked a little bit about the idea of the threefold law and, you know, whether or not people adhere to that. The threefold law is a Wiccan principle that says that everything that you put out there comes back to you times three. And even if you don't adhere to that specifically, uh, you know, we also talked with Cheryl about the idea of what it means to be in control and it's understanding that your actions do have a result and have a consequence. So even if you don't believe in the threefold law specifically, you need to understand that action and consequence is going to happen no matter what. And you can make a decision that you want to do something, but you have to be willing to own up to the consequence. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I do admit that as someone in my late teens, early 20s, I, you know, I did do some love magic on a specific person. And, you know, Becca, I know that you have some previous experiences Mm -hmm. with that, too. And so we wanted to share a little bit about that. And, you know, when I was in my late teens, early 20s, I had a very, very toxic relationship uh, with someone who, uh, you know, it was an on and off relationship and they came and went and it was very toxic, very painful. And I really just wanted to, you know, be in the relationship and have things be okay. And I turned to my high priestess and I said, you know, what can I do? And she said to me, she said, well, if you're really sure, you know, I'll, I'll teach you how you do that kind of love magic and binding on someone specific, but you need to understand that it's going to be very messy energetically and it's going to be very intense and this is actually something that lauren mentioned as well is that when you do cast you know love magic on someone specific the results that you get tend to be pretty toxic and so i did you know i cast this very elaborate spell on on this person at the time and this sort of gets into a a little bit of other mechanics of spell work which is the idea of you know spells only work if you're able to sort of do the magic and release the energy if you keep obsessing over it it's not going to work because you're basically stagnating the energy and keeping it from going out and doing what it needs to do and so you know i cast a spell it didn't really do anything um you know the, the situation continued being toxic and super hurtful and then finally months later i was like you know what i'm done with this and i tried to break it off And it was at that point where I let go that the spell actually kicked in, of course. And so this person became completely obsessed with me. And being that I am, you know, a little bit of a cynical person, I kept thinking to myself, I'm like, well, is it really because I cast a spell or is this person just messed up on their own? And when it became clear to me that, uh, you know, whether or not he had inclinations to act like this on his own, there was definitely an influence there because I had written out this very specific thing saying, you know, I want him to feel this way about me. And, you know, I sort of wrote out specific thoughts and then he started speaking to me in the language of the spell that I had written. That's when I went, oh boy, you know, this is bad. Yeah, it's funny when you like, you get like, like, oh, this is exactly what I asked for. Why did I ask for that? Exactly. And so, you know, then I had to go through a process of trying to undo what I did and releasing those energies. And, you know, it was one of the most toxic sort of periods of my life. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, with that disclaimer in there, like, yes, you can do love magic on a specific person, but understand that it's probably not going to be great unless this is something where you're working with someone who has, you know, who is already involved with you and wants a deeper connection because then you're doing something within a framework of support and as, as opposed to sort of imposing will. Right. So um, so my story is when I was a baby witch, I was probably about 15, and I came up with a list of things that I was looking for in a boy. 
and it was heavy on being pretty and artsy and <laughs> <laughs> light on uh, more substantive matters. And so I had this very long list and, you know, I think I was very new at it and I think, you know, my... If I'm remembering the spell work correctly, it was pretty much just light a candle, light an incense, and sort of like chant the list to myself while I focused on the candle as a meditative object. Very, very basic, simple spell work. But, you know, the basic stuff works. And um, so I had this list, and I, you know, I worked on it for a week, maybe two weeks, and then I put it aside, and soon after that was my birthday. So it was probably like my 16th birthday. And on my birthday, a new student transferred into my school and he showed up in my art class and like he like going down that list, it was just like, yeah, like this is, I don't even remember his name at this point because I did not know him for very long. So was this like movie style? You're in the classroom and then the new kid walks in and the sun is shining behind him and everything slows down and you're like, he's so beautiful. A little bit. And then like, you know, and you know, my teenage gothness, like, oh, and he's like drawing pictures of like skulls with candles in them. Awesome. So yeah. However, as I said, I was pretty light on more important personality details. And he turned out to only be a student of my high school for about two weeks because he was a drug dealer oh. and <laughs> not just a drug dealer, but an incompetent drug dealer because he got caught real quick. <laughs> um, Selling I think, at school? Yeah. Well, yeah. And honestly, I think my school already had like enough drug dealers. So a new one showing up out of nowhere was stepping on turf. Oh, high school <laughs> drug turf wars. <laughs> Yes, in upper middle class Massachusetts high schools, they are rough, actually. Um, uh, yeah, those those football players need a lot of chemical uh, support. So anyway, so yeah, that's that's like my my big like oh god that that didn't work out the way I expected. Or I think part of it, and I didn't act on it either. Like he walked in, I was like, oh my god, this is exactly what. I, and, and I was too shy to like approach him. Mm-hmm. And I was like, holy shit, I manifested someone. And I was too shy to like approach him and then he was gone. And so I think that that was, I think that's, especially people who are new to witchcraft, that when something works, it freaks you out. Mm-hmm. That you're like, oh, like I was, I, I believed in it, but I was, I, I'm not sure how much I believed in it. And then when something actually works, you were like, Oh, is this dangerous? Like, should I, you know, so I think that I kind of had that reaction to it as well. So, um, but yeah, so that's, that's my story that making lists of things that you're looking for. And that works not just for love magic, but it works for all sorts of manifestations when you're, you know, I mean, that's why people do vision boards of their financial success. Yeah. Um, you put it out there, what you're looking for, you focus on it and you can make it a reality. You know, but you also bring up another important point about spell work. And this is something that, oh, God, what was it like 13 years ago at this point when I was studying with Lori Cabot? She talks about, you know, magic works, but you also can't expect it to do everything and you have to be willing to do your part. Right. And so you talked about how you manifested this person, but then you were too shy to act on it. And so you have to sort of realize where the line is between, you know, this magic is kind of pushing me in the right direction and it's helping, but you have to do the thing. Right. 
Uh, Lori specifically always used this example of you know people who would come to her classes and wanted to be wanted to be you know famous actors and they wanted to do this and they wanted to do that, but they were living in the middle of nowhere mm-hmm. and surprised <clears throat> that their acting career wasn't taking off. And she said, you know, you can do all the magic you want, but if you pack up and move to New York, it's going to work better right. because the place where you live doesn't have a film industry and it's not doing any of that. So you kind of have to help. You know, you have to move to New York, move to L.A., kind of be in those places. You can't just sort of sit in your cabin in the woods in the middle of nowhere and expect that somehow you're going to become a successful, you know, actor. Right. Yeah, I think that that ties into so much of magic is really just increasing the odds in your favor Mm -hmm. that you're not... You know, I said, oh, I manifested a person, but clearly he existed somewhere else. Like, he didn't, like, you know, arise like Venus out of of the sea. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe he did. I don't remember his name, and I have no idea who this... Like, I would have no idea of checking on this. Was Um, he even real? (laughs) Who knows? But, you know, it's, it's it's about turning the odds in your favor. And part of turning the odds in your favor is starting with them pretty 50 50 to begin with. It's much easier to push over the line if you're starting with things far against you, then you're going to find it really hard to do magic to get you over that line to have things be in your favor and going your way because you were so far on that other line. And so it's going to take more work. It's going to take more energy from you. Or you're going to have to take smaller steps, just like, you know, in the real mundane world of you don't just apply to be a CEO. Right. (laughs) You know? (laughs) Well, there goes my plan. Yeah, you know, yeah. you you work your way up. You yeah, uh, you get a stupid MFA, um, MFA, MBA. Yeah, <laughs> art M- school. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, well, the other thing that you mentioned that I think is kind of important because you touched a little bit on money magic, right, and that idea of mm-hmm. manifesting the financial reality that you want. And you also talked about making a list that you were making for this person that you wanted to manifest. And one thing, and this also came from Lori Cabot, um, is this idea of understanding that you need to focus on the goal and not necessarily the means. And I don't mean that in like a Machiavellian, like the means justify the ends kind of way, Mm -hmm. but you know, with money magic specifically, you need to remember that money is a means, it's not the goal. And so what you need to think about is, it's not that you want money, you want, you know, a home, you want, let's say you need a car, you want to travel. So rather than thinking of, I want money to buy a car, you think I want the car because, and you know, you might not need the money for the car, you might win it in a lottery, you might, someone might just give you a car, you never know. And so rather than limiting your means for getting your goal, you know, rather than thinking you're like, no, I want money for this thing, think, no, I want the thing and leave more possibilities open. And, um, Sorry that this keeps going back to Lori, but she was very good at spell work. But she, So she actually talked once about a student that she had in a class who was visualizing, and it was specifically about money magic, and he kept saying, like, I can't stop seeing piles of money, piles of money. And she kept saying, no, you need to think about your goals. And he's like, I can't do it. All I can think about is money. Like and then duck style? Yeah, and so, but, so what ended up happening is that, you know, he put this spell out, and then he got in touch with her a couple weeks later, and he goes, yeah, I got a job as a bank teller. That's not what I wanted. Because he just kept seeing money, so he got a job counting money. So that's just something to think about is, you know, be really specific about the goal that you're trying to achieve, because if you're focused on the means, like, you know, you might, you're limiting yourself, but also you might not get what you're going. Like, this guy just wanted money piles, and he got money piles, but they weren't his money piles. 
Right. And I think it's interesting, um, before we started recording, we were looking over some, uh, some spells from different books and different resources. And the one that you were looking at kept mentioning Venus and the day of Venus and the hour of Venus and Venus. And I think that's interesting that we keep bouncing between love and money magic in here because Venus astrologically also does rule money. Right. Um, but not like there are several, like, you know, Jupiter also rules money in Jupiter's force of making things larger. Venus rules money because Venus rules beautiful, nice things. Mm -hmm. And so it's very much that, like, what is the thing you want? Like, the actual, like, cash is, like, you know, in our modern world, money doesn't actually exist. Right. You know, mon money is just computer signals. They're all made up. Right. It's just yeah. the barter system that we've designed. And so yeah. <clears throat> it's just the means to the end. Money is a figment of our imaginations that we've all agreed to. But Venus rules the aspect of money that is beautiful things that make us happy. So yeah. I think that's important too. So like, you know, I think that there's a reason that we keep bouncing between love and money magic because they are very related. Yeah. So since you mentioned the books that we were looking at, we might as well jump into some of those things says, you know, money, money, love magic is one of the oldest forms of magic that are out there. And I guess money magic too, you know, prosperity and love are the two things that people really want. And, you know, there's a big difference between sort of old world magic and modern magic. And so I have this book here that I got who knows when, but it's called Magic Charms from A to Z, and it was published by the Witch's Almanac, which, by the way, is based in Newport, Rhode Island, because apparently everything is really close by. And this is described as a treasury of amulets, talismans, fetishes, and other lucky objects compiled by the staff of the Witch's Almanac. And they have a section here. Um, and within their medieval magic and it's on how to consecrate a love talisman and there's actually a, a picture in here of a venus pentacle from the greater key of solomon uh, maybe i can put a picture of that in the blog post when we get around to it but i'm going to read this this piece here on to consecrate a love talisman love belongs to the domain of venus planet of poetry music joy and harmony that planet's placement was the first consideration a well-aspected venus should be in the zodiac sign of pisces in direct motion, for a retrograde Venus could undermine the operation. The sun must be in either Taurus or Libra, the signs ruled by Venus. The rite should take place on Friday, the day of Venus, and within the hours when that planet's power is strongest, midnight to 1 a.m., 7 to 8 a.m., 2 to 3 p.m., or 9 to 10 p.m. Early magical manuals decree that the talisman chosen and all objects used to bless it must be new and never before used for any purpose. This strict rule extended to candles made from wax produced by bees for the first time. A simplification proposed by the Grimorium Verum, which is a French text dated to 1517, but probably an 18th century work, was a process of aspersion, an archaic term meaning to sprinkle with holy water and fumigation. True Black Magic, published in Rome in 1750, describes the instrument of aspersion. And the Aspergillum is a bouquet of vervain, periwinkle, sage, mint, valerian, ash, basil, and rosemary forming a brush. Fit it with a handle of virgin hazel, three palms in length, and dip it in a glazed earthen pot filled with fresh spring water. Sprinkle over all. This device may be used on any occasion with perfect assur assurance that all phantoms will be expelled from every place which shall be sprinkled thereby and so exercised. Fumigation was accomplished by taking a new coal which has not been kindled, setting it alight, and whilst it's still black, exercising it, saying, I exercise thee, O creature of fire, by him who hath made all things. The fumes of incense placed on the live coal pleasantly dispersed any lingering evil spirits. A love talisman would be consecrated with scents most pleasing to Venus. Aloes wood, ambergris, sandalwood, musk, rose, 
myrtle, and resins of galbanum and storax. The talisman might be the symbol of Venus inscribed on parchment in black ink. A precious gem or a scrap of sea glass engraved with an appropriate image must be green, the color of Venus. A square of duly incised and highly polished copper was another possibility, for copper is the metal associated with Venus. The magician prepared with a period of fasting, chastity, and three hours of silence prior to the rite. A ritual bath and the donning of vestments followed. The 16th century Italian grimoire of Honorius advised a long surplus of white linen and bare feet as proper attire. In a room reserved for magical work, a sacred circle was defined by a nine-foot silk cord. Within the circle, the purified objects were assembled. A small wooden table to serve as an altar covered by a white linen cloth, two white candles and glass holders, an incense burner to hold a fiery coal, incense, and the talisman. The candles were positioned to mark north on the left, south on the right, for the magician faced east in the performance of the rite. The room was darkened, candles lit, incense ignited, and the talisman was held aloft as prayers to Venus and her planetary angel, Anael, were recited. I actually don't know if that's the correct way to pronounce that name. After the invocation, the magician asked the talisman be blessed for his use and benefit. The talisman was left on the altar and not touched until the next day. So that's a very you know intense uh, form of medieval magic. Yeah, I actually I'm uh, I'm on a Facebook group called Stellar Sorcery, mm-hmm. um, and I have never I have not personally done any of this sort of magic, but there are people on that group who are experts in this sort of magic. And, um, and they have really good results with this sort of thing. Um, there's a whole lot of like how to do the, you know, the astrological elections that are much more complicated that they, than they say right there. It's about how fast is the moon going or like, you know, where's the North node? It's very complex. And when they make talismans, they make extras and they sell them for thousands of dollars. Wow. And they get good results. And I think that there, there's a book, uh, I don't know if it's called, if there's pronounced Picatrix or Picatrix, but it's, it's medieval from uh, an Arabic source. A lot of this comes from Arabic magic. And yeah, there's, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there. So the, the two people who, um, that I know that do the most work that is actually for sale are, um, I think it's, it's Clifford Lowe and uh, Christopher Warnock. And it's funny, they're both in the group and they have... Sometimes they have very different agreement opinions on what's a good election and what's a bad election. But there's definitely, there's been some good Venus elections recently that people are like, oh yeah, I made my talisman and now I'm hooking up with everyone at work. It's like, okay, if that's, if that's what you want, I guess. Like, that, that seems like it's going to lead to badness, but I don't know where you work. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, so I think that there, there are some very complex things and people do get good results and people get really bad results. If you slightly miscalculate, people have in this group have reported some very, very negative side effects doing astrological magic. Hmm. Um, that things, if things go wrong, they will explode in your face. And it's been it's been described as you know if you're doing, you know if you're riding a, a tricycle and you go over a bump, then it's probably fine. So like doing easy magic. But like if you're driving a race car at 100 miles an hour and you hit a bump, you just go up in a ball of flames. And that's like really this very <laughs> this very complex astrological magic that, yeah, your race car is awesome until you explode. And so, <laughs> so I haven't actually worked with it myself, but I'm kind of like a lurker on this Facebook group trying to like 
do I even have the, like the time in my life to learn the system? But it does seem very cool. The other thing I wanted to say there, you know, they talked about not only in that spell you read, not only the um, the actual astrological placement of Venus being correct, but the you know the day of Venus being Friday and the hours of Venus. And I haven't actually checked, but I think that those hours that they're referring to, um, they're called the Chaldean order, mm-hmm. that the different hours of the day belong to different planets. So, yeah, I've seen that before. You know, obviously, you know, the Friday belongs to Venus, Freya's day, you know, Sunday belongs to the sun, Monday belongs to the moon. It's, it's pretty straightforward. But there's, I think that, that that's a very simplistic way that this book has put it, because the Chaldean order with the, the planetary hours during the day, it's not just hours on the clock you actually take sunrise to sunset and divide it into 12 Mm -hmm. and sunset through sunrise and divide that into 12 so in the winter your nighttime hours will be more than an hour Mm -hmm. and in the and your your daytime hours will be less than an hour in the summertime the opposite and then you know there's if anyone is uh, familiar with the 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 abramelin ritual by, uh, it was first published by Abraham von Worm, a German-Jewish mystic uh, in like 1500s, I think. And a lot of Western magical Golden Dawn stuff is based on this. Uh, Mathers did a famous translation, which his translation was good, but was from a faulty French copy. And there's a more recent version, which has better translations. You know, he's just like, planetary hours are for babies, and you should use the actual astrological like, <laughs> charts if you're doing this for real. A lot of people now do what that spell says, and they calculate for both, mm-hmm. which limits the availability of when you can do this by a lot. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. You know, when you start getting into those things, it becomes sort of very limiting and very restricting, and you don't have to do all that. You don't have to wait until that precise minute to do any kind of magic, but it's just a matter of how many odds can you stack in your favor. So if you are picking a time and a day and you know planetary alignment that is closest to your intent, that just means that you're starting sort of with more advantages, but that doesn't mean that you can't do the magic otherwise. So I don't want anyone to feel, you know, paralyzed by that idea of, oh, I have to calculate hours and days and, you know, planetary movements. You don't have to, but, you know, maybe you want to avoid doing magic during Mercury retrograde, just kind of as a general rule of thumb. But really, you know, magic can be done anytime. There was a time when people didn't have the resources to calculate all these things and didn't know all these things, and they were still doing magic. Right. Right. And I think that, um, I think things like astrological magic, like are somewhat getting a resurgence now because we suddenly have computers that can do all these damn calculations for us Mm -hmm. and people like, you know, spend $300 on solar fire and suddenly they can find the perfect election for their talisman where before they would have to done the math themselves and just not bothered. So would you mind clarifying the term election for people who don't know what that means? Sure. So... Election is a type of astrology where uh, you look into the future and you see where the planets are at future dates and you pick a good one. Very simplistically, although they're, they're translated differently than natal charts. So if you were saying like, oh, I'm getting married, what date should I get married on? You would go to an astrologer to pick a good election for marriages. Mm-hmm. You know, and if you're starting a business, you would go to an astrologer for a good election to start a business. 
very simply, you can think of it as everything has a birth date. Mm -hmm. And if you go to an astrologer who does elections, they can pre-pick that birth date for you. Mm -hmm. And you can start the thing at that time. Whereas humans, obviously, we're born where, you know, first breath is first breath. And although... I mean, I've heard rumors of people having C-sections because they're really into astrology and they want a specific thing, but like... I've, I think I've those, heard that too. I think those are just rumors. I, 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 if they're not rumors, it is pretty rare. Is this something that folks could come to you for? Do you do elections with your astrology work? Um, right now, I, I'm still learning. I'm not at a state that I can take clients doing that. I'm yeah. still, I'm still, uh, you know, I've been reading tarot cards for 30 years, and I'll take this point to say, if you go to the witchcitywitches.com website, you can book a reading with either Anna or I. But, um, so, you know, I've had a lot of tarot experience, but I'm really just, the past 18 months, have really been digging in deep and being serious about my astrological studies. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm definitely not in a place that I'm taking clients right now, but it is, it is something that I'm very interested in. And, and you know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm an intermediate to advanced student right now. <laughs> yeah. I will admit astrology is definitely not my strong suit. And so when I'm doing spell work, I don't worry as much about you know, planetary alignments. I do sort of want to know big energies. Like I said, I will avoid mercury retrograde, because, you know, it's a bad time for communication in general, and that includes communicating spell work. But I, I worry more about, and I guess worry might not be the right word, but I am more concerned with phases of the moon from when I'm doing work. Right. And that's one of the things that you and I had discussed is how people are looking at phases of the moon and deciding when to, to do things and sort of an oversimplification of how that's being approached. So if we are looking at love magic specifically as we are discussing in this episode, when would you recommend that people do love magic as far as moon phases? Uh, well, I mean, definitely while the moon is waxing, which means getting bigger. Mm-hmm. Um, so anytime after the new moon, and when I say new moon, I mean when the moon is visible in the sky. Um, the, the very crescent moon, when you can see it um, at the horizon, at sunset, I would not be doing love magic just because... Uh, your calendar said it's the new moon, but the moon, ha- like, it's still dark because it conjunct the sun. I would not be doing it at that point. And then up to right before the full moon. Um, I would say if the more complicated your spell is, I think spell work works best if you do repetitions. So I would start soon after the new moon and keep it going. <laughs> you know, you've got two weeks. So I would uh, I would do some repetitions in those two weeks leading up to the full moon, possibly uh, right before the full moon mm-hmm. when the moon looks full. But it, you know you don't want to when you, the calendar says the full moon that is the the exact tipping point. Mm-hmm. So if the calendar says oh it's the full moon today, but it happened at eight o'clock in the morning, you don't want to be doing your final manifestation spell at sunset that night because it's already gone over the tip of the mountain. So there are people who say that the energy of the full moon lingers for about a week, Mm -hmm. you know, so surrounding the actual astrological peak time. Right. How do you feel about that? Because if the energy is lingering, then that would mean that, yes, you can do it after. I mean... Honestly, you can do it at any point. Right. I would say that your results are better when... And, this, and like you know, like I said, I'm I'm deep in this astrology work, and there's the the 
the idea of applying and separating aspects. So when planets are moving together and coming into conjunction, their energy is strong and, you know, maybe it's like two weeks before that happens that you'll have the energy. But when they're separating, they're moving away from each other, mm-hmm. um, the energy is weaker and maybe you only have one week. Like you, like they're, it gets weaker sooner. Mm-hmm. So I'd say that, I mean, if something has to be done, do it. Don't right. fret so much about the moon phase that you're stopping yourself. I think, you know, when I was a teenager, and I'm not sure I even cared about the moon phase. I was just like doing shit. Like, yeah. I'll say that when I got married, I did go to astrologer who turned out to not be great at elections, but um, (laughs) it just wasn't something that she was particularly trained in. So I couldn't say pick a date for a wedding and she could pick a date. She was just like, well, give me a couple of dates and let me run them. Hmm. One of the things that she said was she picked a date that was a full moon. And it was, we actually did get married a couple hours after the, the actual astronomical full moon. Yeah. But she was just like, you know, make sure you do it within a couple hours while the energy is still strong. Yeah. So, you know, it does linger, but it, you know, it fades. Um, one thing I will say about, you know, magic stuff, a lot of old magic that you'll read has a lot of rituals happening at the full moon. Yes. Especially mystery religions. Mm-hmm. They, even if we don't know anything about the mystery religion because it was a mystery and it was a closed circle and nobody wrote anything down, that's yeah. kind of the nature of it. We do know that their gatherings happened at the full moon. Like things like, you know, from, you know, Julius Caesar would beware the Ides of March. That is now like, oh, it's the 13th of March. Well, that's just because the Greek lunar calendar was kind of smushed into the solar Roman calendar. And it's supposed to be, you know, the the 13th of the month would be the full moon because the month starts at the new moon. And so two weeks later, you know, the 13th through the 15th. And that's when certain religious happenings were happening for the very practical reason that these were outdoor ceremonies in a pre-industrialized civilization where your choices of nighttime illumination were torches or moonlight. Right. (laughs) So a lot of these rituals very practically were happening, you know, from one day before the the full moon to one day after the full moon, because that's when you could see, (laughs) you know? I mean, there's a lot as far as religions in general and old customs that are really based in logic and that we sort of give mystical meaning to. Mm-hmm. And, you know, full disclosure, I am not Jewish, but one of the things that I realized at some point in my life through various discussions with people is, you know, the idea of not eating pork and realizing that there was some logic there in that pork actually becomes poisonous when it spoils. And if you live in the desert, it's not the kind of thing that's going to keep very well. Right. And so there is kind of a, a bit of a practical component to a lot of the things that we've sort of mysticized in modern day. <laughs> And a lot of other uh, rules are about about just separating yourself from people that live nearby because you like it's very you know old culture. Our culture still is very clannish, mm-hmm. and you know gangs wear colors so you know who's a member. Sports teams wear logos so you know who's a member. Yeah, you know, witches wear like, black so that they know we're witches. <laughs> <laughs> or you know like like band logos like things like that. We 
wear symbols on ourselves so that we can find our tribes Mm -hmm. and a lot of rules which we look now like that seems stupid well it's like well that that was how you found your tribe is that and it's still how you find your tribe like you know people like you, you bring up judaism people who are observant and you know follow these the you know fashion choices that are outlined in you know deuteronomy and stuff that you know, that's that's how they recognize other members of their tribe. And so, I mean, like, I'm also not Jewish, and, you know, there's other, you know, mystical meanings for that. But a large part of it is just, like, oh, you see someone dressed like that, you know that you have something in common. Right. I mean, you know, going back to my, my Cabot days, when I was still attending her circles and you know not that I have any issue with her now it's just that my practices have kind of diverged but you know we had specific robes that she that we'd have to get that were made in the style that she liked and it had to have a specific um you know tartan associated with it and she has specific embroidered insignia that would go on a specific shoulder and it was very clear when you showed up to these circles that were open to the public but it was very clear you know who was part of sort of the you know, the clergy of the ritual mm-hmm. and who was an attendee. There's uh, there's also a big subconscious psychological element to that that assumes, like, really, I need to get dressed up. I need to... This is stupid. Does it really matter? And maybe on a cosmological, like, basis, no, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you wear. It doesn't, like, does not matter. But especially... I'm not going to say especially when you're practicing in a group because changing your wardrobe when you're practicing as a solitary and saying this is my sacred space this is my sacred wardrobe Mm -hmm. these are the things i wear when i'm in this space really does flip your mind and when you're in a group you like you said you can see like you're all we're working together we're all in this together there's not this the one cynical person being like well i didn't feel like it today right Yeah, and you know, that actually brings me to, you know, some of the other things I want to talk about in spell work, and this of course relates to love magic, but any kind of magic is that idea of separating the the mundane from the sacred. Mm-hmm. And so when we look at that, you know, that ritual that I read from this book, and it's talking about, oh, you need three hours of silence, and you need fasting, and you need this, and you need that. And it's not necessarily that you need those specific elements, but you need to kind of draw the line between you know, the hustle and bustle of my everyday, and now I'm doing sacred work. Because any kind of magic is sacred work, and that's something that you need to sort of have clear in your head that it is ritual. And so, sort of the more you can separate between the mundane and the sacred, the better. Um, I had someone that I worked with uh, in a magical partnership for many years, and the way that she used to phrase it, which I found very uh, very helpful, is that you want to increase the profundity and decrease the mundanity. And that is true of you know yourself, your space, and the tools that you're working with. You know, we talked about this with Lauren as well, that if you don't have the right intent, then you're just being loud and waving smelly things. Um, but if you take the time to sort of focus your intent and understand, you know, this is not just a candle, it's a tool for this. And mm-hmm. it's bringing together the, you know, the elements of, you know, there's fire in the flame. Some people say there's water in candle because of the melting wax. And so if you take the time to sort of acknowledge all those things and make space for it, what you're doing is you're starting to build your energetic vibrations for that spell. Mm-hmm. I will say there is a, um, you know, there's a, sort of a kitchen witch, hedge witch theory that like you know you shouldn't have special tools these the knife that you use in your spell work should be the knife that you're using to cut your food but that mentality 
is not about bringing the mundane into your spell work. It's about bringing the spell, spell work, work into your mundane. Exactly. And it's about saying, like, no, like, everything in my life is a ritual. Co- making my dinner is, a, is spell work. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to be using my regular kitchen knife for this, but I'm also going to be using my regular kitchen knife in more traditional spell work because they're the same thing. And it's not bringing your spell work down, but it's bringing the rest of your life up. Yes, that brings me to, yeah, the, the flip side of that, and that's actually something that I talk about in my book, which, by the way, I don't think I've ever mentioned on this podcast that I published a book last year. It's called A Little Bit of Shamanism by me. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I, ha- I had some sort of very long written exchanges with a student that I'd had in a workshop in Brooklyn, New York, and he was very concerned about not being able to, you know, have what he called sacred days and making the time to only you know focus on sacred work and sort of doing this whole elaborate cleansing process and you know he he was a practicing you know witch or I, I honestly don't know if that was the term that he used specifically but he was a you know a magical practitioner but he was in a field of work where he couldn't do that openly and so he had a very very rigid separation between his magical practice and sort of the rest of his life and what I said to him is you know you really sort of need to figure out how you can marry those two a little more because you know the more of the sacred and the magical that you can bring into your everyday even if it's just in the way that you carry yourself the better you know, even just something as simple as understanding that, you know, words are spells, right? That you manifest through words. And that's actually something that links back to Kabbalah, but it's that idea of reality is created through words. Then even if you're just aware of what you say throughout the entire day, then you are already bringing more magic into what you're doing all the mm-hmm. time. That and really, that turns into like the, the, the mindfulness movement, which is very popular right now. I know I personally have a Headspace um, subscription, but the idea that um, you're not just meditating for 20 minutes a day, you're bringing that awareness into your life. Right. And it's not, you know, not, not just mindfulness, but that idea of being in control and understanding that everything that you do has an impact. And this actually reminds me of a, another thing that I discuss in my book, but it's that idea of people who go out and take smoke breaks and that idea of what tobacco is and what it used to be. And in a lot of American indigenous cultures, uh, tobacco is used as a accessory to prayer. When you're burning tobacco, you're communicating with spirits. And so, you know, when you're burning tobacco and you're speaking, you know, speaking words, what you're doing is you're asking, you know, the spirits and the deities to listen to what you're saying. And so there's this concept that, you know, smoke breaks can actually be really uh, dangerous, for lack of a better word, because if you're stepping outside to, like, smoke a cigarette and, like, you know, kind of complain to yourself about your day, like, think about what you're putting out there. You are lighting a sacred herb, like tobacco, Mm -hmm. and you're asking spirits to tune in, and then you're complaining a whole bunch. Right. (laughs) You know? And so what are you drawing in? Right. Yeah, the other thing, I uh, I don't know if this is true or not, something I was told recently, that a lot of um, the feeling that smokers get of that smoking a cigarette is relaxing is because it's forcing you to breathe deeply. Mm-hmm. And like that's like a big part of that that relaxation is just you're you're taking big inhales and we don't do that throughout our lives. Yeah. But yeah, so um, actually before we've got about ten minutes. And I wanted to... Um, I was just thinking but, that. I was like, there's still so much to talk about. <laughs> I do want to briefly talk about, I don't know if anyone is familiar with the Greek magical papyri, but it's a obviously a very old uh, uh, t- magical text written in Greek on papyrus. And it's, it has a number of different authors. 
and there um, there are various love spells in it. And this one I am familiar with because of my work with Hecate. Some people um, abstract the calling to Hecate in this into other um, into you know just other ritual practice. Mm-hmm. But this is actually a very um, compulsive, very nasty love spell. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but you know it starts off with appealing to Hecate, come giant Hecate, Dion's guard, O Persia, you know, dark shooter, unconquered Lydian, the one tamed, like this whole thing about how she, you know, she works with the dead, but she like this, all of the epithets you could have for Hecate. And I think that, um, I'll put a link to this on the show notes because I think Hecate is a very popular goddess right now. I know that she personally, it was not a part of my practice until about two years ago when I suddenly felt compelled. And I think that she's really calling a lot of people right now. But reading these old inscriptions to her and how people talked to her, I think is very um, is very useful just to increase your knowledge. And this really shows how ancient magic did a lot of commanding gods to do things. I think <laughs> modern magic, when we talk to gods, we ask them very politely if they can help us out. So this spell that says, you know, it's this whole like, you know, paragraphs and paragraphs of all of Hecate's various epithets and how great she is. And then it says, go stand above her name here, head and take away from her sweet sleep and never let eyelid come glued to eyelid, but let her be sore distressed with wakeful cares for me. And if she lies with someone else in her embrace, let her thrust him away and take me in her heart. Let her abandon him at once and stand before my door, subdued in soul at longing for my bed of love. Then more, Hecate is awesome, come Hecate. (laughs) Uh, uh, In frenzy, may she come fast to my doors, forgetting children and her life with parents and loathing all the race of men and women except me. But may she hold me alone and come subdued in heart by lover's great force. And, you know, and then it closes with more invocations to Hecate. And yeah. so there there are several other love spells in there, too. But I think that's, like... That's kind of the extreme yeah. of maybe this is not a good way to do love magic. <laughs> yeah, like, that's... that's uh, that's If that works, that's going to really come back to bite you. Because uh, the person that you have just invoked a... You've turned them into a stalker. You've turned them into... She's got to show up with a knife. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah, this is the person who's going to say, if you ever look at someone else, I'm going to cut you. So so I think that that's... This is a very... This is, you know, this is over a thousand years old. And this is... I think that when people like, oh, the ethics of love magic, they're thinking, like, is this the sort of thing that... and, And yeah, don't... Don't do that. There's a reason that people are like, "Mm, I'm not sure about the spells in that book. Like, there are a lot of really interesting things. And and it's the Greek magical papyri, but you'll often see it uh, abbreviated as PGM because uh, the abbreviation is not from English. So the letters are switched around. But it's it's interesting definitely as a history to read them. Mm -hmm. And um, there are also interesting things about the the gods in there. But yeah, so I just wanted to to bring that up as kind of uh, the extreme... That's, you don't want to be doing that. <laughs> yeah, so at the beginning of the episode, we talked about sort of the best love magic is the love magic that you do on yourself. And so level one of that is, you know, magic to love yourself first. Level two is sort of putting the request for love out there, right? Level three would kind of be casting a spell on a specific person. But beyond ethics, a consideration that we need to have is that 
as people, we don't always know what's best for us. Like, we think we do, and we have very specific ideas about it, but honestly, most of the time we don't. And so I post to you folks out there who are considering doing love magic on a specific person, what if there's someone out there who's actually better for you? And so if you're so fixated on one specific person, you might be passing up on a much better opportunity. And so if you focus, you know, instead of focusing on the specific person, think about the qualities that you want in the person, but not just that, the qualities that you want in your relationship. Because, you know, you can ask for a person who's, you know, super generous, for example, but if you're asking for someone who's super generous, is this just going to be someone who's out volunteering all the time and they don't actually have time to show up for your relationship? So you have to be specific about the qualities that you want in the person and how those qualities will manifest in a relationship. So you want a person who has, you know, qualities of, let's say, you know, kindness, generosity, uh, attentiveness, you know, I think those are things that everybody's looking for in a partner, but you also want to be specific about, I want them to be attentive in their relationship with me. I want yeah. them to be generous towards me. And I think that that really goes into what you were saying about like, you know, don't ask for the money, ask for the thing. It can even go beyond like, you know, being really specific about the things you're looking for and just to hold on to the feeling that you're looking for. Like, what if I find this person that's perfect for me, what does it feel like when I'm with them? Right. And to really like manifest that even wordlessly, yeah. but just like picture that feeling in your head. And when I say picture, obviously you don't picture a feeling with like, with actual like visualizations. And that can be a problem with people doing spell work that's always like visualize, visualize, because some people can't visualize and that's normal. So you need to, you know, what does the feeling feel like? What does your skin feel like? Do you hear things? Do you taste things? Do you smell things? Like what, it, what is your sensory experience that you're looking yeah. for? Yeah, and instead of visualizing, I write things down. Mm -hmm. I try and write my intent down very specifically of what I'm looking for. And so, and that's another thing, you, you know, there's sort of two ways to go into spell work. You can think about it ahead of time and really figure out what you're doing and then go and do the thing or you can fly it by the seat of your pants and kind of do like impulsive magic and you know I'm going to recommend that you don't do impulsive magic because you know there, there's advantages in that you're really bringing the passion and the energy element when you kind of do something by the seat of your pants where you're like you know what I just need to do a thing right now but you know you're not putting as much thought into it you're not being as specific and so the challenge is how do you bring sort of that that drive and that energy that comes from the imp impulsive side of magic into something that you've sort of carefully thought out. Right. So before we wrap up, I know you have some thoughts on sex magic and yes. I don't want to miss out on that. Yeah. So I think that today's episode is going to run over an hour and you know, if please stick with us to the end if you feel like it, because I do want to talk a bit about sex magic and you know, what is the difference between love magic and sex magic? And one of the things that I want to refer to um, before we get started is Doreen Valiente's Charge of the Goddess. And this is sort of a devotional inspirational text that is used a lot in Wiccan circles. And, but the part that I want to focus on specifically is this one paragraph that says, let my worship be within hearts that, rejo that rejoice, for behold, all acts of love and pleasure are my rituals. And therefore, let there be beauty and strength, power and compassion, honor and humility, mirth and reverence within you. And specifically, the part that I want to focus on is the idea of all acts of love and pleasure are my rituals. Uh, you know, there's a whole discussion there about sex is sacred and sort of breaking away from restrictive and oppressive norms, but let's you know, let's just take that as a given for now because otherwise we're going to talk for like three hours. And But there's a distinction here between love and pleasure, and both are sacred. Okay, and so that actually 
ties into that idea of, you know, anything that you're doing out of love is sacred, but everything that you do for pleasure is sacred. And that idea of as witches, we're allowed to experience pleasure and embrace that. And of course, you know, sex hopefully is a source of pleasure, but it is a huge energetic buildup and it's a really good way to focus intent and magic. And so what does sex magic mean? Uh, you know, love magic you're doing because you're trying to achieve love. Sex magic, you're not doing, it's not magic to have sex, you're using sex to achieve a goal. And so, obviously this is something that you should do with a partner that you trust. And actually, you don't even have to do it with a partner because it's not about the other person being there. This is gonna get, I guess, a little bit graphic, warning, but it's about the use of um, climax mm -hmm. as you know a magical tool. Right, so we haven't talked about, you know, cone of power specifically within our podcast, but you know, for me, all my magic centers around that idea of building a cone of power and releasing it. And what does that mean? It's called a cone of power because it's based on the idea that when you cast a circle and you build energy, the energy kind of builds kind of into a pyramid shape, right? And it funnels upwards, so it's that cone. And so what you're doing when you're casting a spell, any kind of spell, any kind of magic, is that you're concentrating all this energy that you want for your intent, and then you have to release it. And so if you think about the process of climax, that's literally what you're doing, right? You are building and then hopefully, you know, at orgasm climax, you're releasing. And so how do you use sex magic? Um, whether with a partner or by yourself, you know, you want to sort of define your intent ahead of time and you want to keep that intent clear in your mind and you sort of want to set up the spell to be, you know, when I climax, I release this into the world. Mm -hmm. And I can say that it is more effective if you're doing it with a partner and a partner who's in the know. And that's you know, another question of ethics that you can decide is that if you are doing sex magic with a partner, you don't necessarily have to tell them that that's what you're doing. And I would say, you know, don't do this as sex magic on the person that you're <laughs> sleeping with. But if you're like, you know what, I really need to uh, have some more money in my life, you know, financial prosperity, you can say, I'm going to use sex magic for this and I'm going to sort of write my intent and you know, you can, you know, write your intent, maybe stick it under your mattress. And at the moment of climax, you're releasing that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's not something where you're doing anything with, you know, towards your partner. So it's okay if you're not telling them like, hey, by the way, this mm -hmm. is a spell. Um, but if you are doing, you know, sex magic as related to love or something that pertains to the other person, please do tell them. <laughs> yeah, I say I, I've never, I've never like gone into a situation like planning to do sex magic. But there have definitely been times that I have done magical spells, that I have raised energy in other ways, through dance, through various ways, and I've done it, and I've done the release, and at that moment, it's like, I need to have sex right now. Right. And like, so I definitely, so I, that might be like accidental sex magic, but, but there's definitely, there's definitely sometimes like an energy that I've felt raised in spell casting, which is a very sexual energy that's just like, okay, like this, this needs to be released. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, because that's the thing, you know, energy is energy and how you direct it is what really matters. But when you get your body vibrating, it is going to sort of vibrate all of you. And that includes you know, right. the fun bits. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but, you know, I have done magic where I've said to my partner, like, you know what? Hey, things are really tight right now. We need things to turn around. And, uh, you know, when we have sex tonight, like this is going to be our intent. OK. And he's like, OK. So <laughs> that is definitely something that you can do. And hey, it's also fun while you're doing it, which is a bonus. 
Um, but so that's the thing, you know, I think that there's sort of a lot of images of what sex magic is and it can be this, like, oh, is it orgies? Is it like eyes wide shut kind of a deal? Like, you know what? It, it can be if you want it to be, but it doesn't have to be. It can even be, you know, like your personal ritual. And you know what? Going back to that idea of uh, love magic for yourself and loving yourself, but like what better way to do a spell for loving yourself than doing sex magic by yourself? Mm -hmm. Right, that's kind of an ultimate, you know, loving yourself in so many ways. Right, yeah, that's, uh, you know, a nice ritual bath, but yeah, it sounds awesome. <laughs> right, <laughs> exactly, and so I think that, you know, sex magic can be really powerful and can be used, you know, you could use it for, for love magic, but you can use it for any kind of magic, and this is a part of, you know, this is, love, sex magic is different from sex rituals and sex worship, because there are traditions um off the top of my head i want to say artemis where people are doing sort of devotional rituals and using sex as a form of worship mm. and that is different from sex magic where you're using sex to manifest there you're using sex as a devotional act right it's the same thing as you know leaving out an offering or lighting mm -hmm. a candle in the honor of a deity then you know you can have sex in their honor as well and so that's a different way to use that and so that's why it's always really important to understand like to have your intent very clear with whatever you're doing mm -hmm. because you know you can use a candle for a million types of different magic you can use you know sex in a million different ways you can use love magic in a, you know, a million different ways so that's why i think that intent being clear is the most important thing you know that's why the impulsive magic can be a little bit dangerous because you know if your intent's not clear the energy's not really gonna know what it's doing or where it's going right when you talk about doing it as a, a devotional offering i know that there are witch and pagan sex workers who definitely take that into their work especially like you know exotic dancers who their dance routines, they do that as a offering to their deities. Mm -hmm. And they sort of, some of them even, you know, will invite their deities to, you know, into themselves while they do their performances. And I think that, that that's, a, that's a really interesting way of like, you know, bringing, bringing that energy in. Yeah, I mean, we haven't even discussed the Great Rite, which is mm -hmm. used in rituals. And I don't know if the Great Rite is part of your practice. It, in, it's whether, not, I'm aware of it, though. You know, whether symbolically or not. And so what the Great Rite is, is in some, uh, you know, schools of witchcraft, is the sort of symbolic union of male and female divine, right? It's that sort of moment of uh, fertilization. And it's the idea of replicating the god and the goddess coming together and fertilizing each other within ritual and so in some circles that is done with the priest and the high priestess literally you know having sex within ritual and in other circumstances it's done symbolically and so uh, you know in a lot of traditions you'll see that a chalice and a knife you know uh, mm -hmm. the athame are part of the tools that you use and that's one of the things that you use that for where the chalice is symbolic of the womb and obviously you know the knife is a phallus mm -hmm. and so there's generally this motion of uh you know having the the chalice full of either wine or water and then you lower you know you lower your athame into it and you know like sort of the most basic script for that would be you know holding up your chalice and you're saying you know i am the goddess i am the womb and you hold up your knife and you say i am the father i am the fertilizer and i fertilize you and you dip the, that that blade into the water and so that's a symbolic form of sex and in that case you know the important imagery there isn't the sex itself but it's that idea of opposites coming together 
to manifest. And so that's a different way of, you know, looking at incorporating the idea of sex into ritual and magic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think we've talked about a lot of stuff today. Uh, we could go on. We're both talkers. We can keep this going, but I think we're just about ready to wrap up. Yeah, so I feel like there's so much more that can be talked about when it comes to love magic. So if you have questions, if you have thoughts, you know, this isn't going to be the only and last time we talk about it. So please send us your questions. You can email us at askawitch at witchcitywitches.com. You can follow us on Instagram at witchcitywitches and, you know, message us on there. Whether, you know, respond to our stories. We have um, our Facebook page. There is a private group. Yeah, well, um, we just set up. It's a small group, but, you know, help us grow it and come chime in and talk to us. It's called, you know, Witch City Witches Discussion Group. Right. There's uh, a, yeah, there's a link directly from our Facebook page. And it is a private group, so feel free to post there and not worry that it's going to show up on your wall or something. It is it's a private group and only members can see what you post there. Yeah. And we'll let you in, just, you know, request it <laughs> to be added. And as we mentioned, Becca and I are both available for tarot readings as well. If anyone is interested, you can find that on witchcitywitches.com. Uh, thank you so much for tuning in, and we'll catch you next time. Thanks, everybody.